Hello, and welcome to Patmos. Thank you for watching and or listening. Uh, today we're going to be talking about aliens, UFOs, and demons. So, a fun little topic. But first I'd like to ask everybody who's listening or watching uh, to this podcast to please uh, leave a rating on iTunes. Uh, it's the biggest podcast collection in the world and uh, where most people actually listen to podcasts through. So that really, really helps to spread this podcast to new people if you are watching on youtube or if you could actually do both that'd be great like the video subscribe to the channel and hit that notification bell it lets you know every time that i'm going to go live and or release a new video um, and i also have a small community i've started on locals.com uh, which is kind of more outside of the silicon valley control mechanism definitely a lot more free uh, and definitely a lot more outside of those controls than say facebook or twitter um, joining is free. You can read everything that I put up there. But if you do want to comment or do any kind of posts or message me, uh, the minimum, the bare minimum that Locals is set for, for me to allow is uh, $2 per month. And you just basically set that up um, through a credit card and it just automatically, or you can do a one-time donation and, and get in that way. Um, and I use that to pay for you know, cameras, mics, all that kind of good stuff that people have to have to do this sort of stuff. If you'd rather actually donate via cryptocurrency, the pinned welcome post on my locals.com uh, uh, has all the addresses there. So just go to ozymandias.locals.com. That's O-Z-Y-M-A-N-D-I-A-S.locals.com. So this will be a fun little topic, something that I've thought about uh, for a while. I, you know, I grew up during the the, the 90s, the X-Files era, and it was one of my favorite shows, um, which kind of shoehorned me in kind of a, in, into a short-lived fascination with UFOs and all that that kind of entailed. Um, I can't remember exactly what age. I think I was around like 13 or something along those lines. But I read every book I could find in the subject, and, uh, you know, this is in the pre-internet era. Uh, not quite pre-internet, but pre-internet for the very tiny town where I grew up in. Um, and I watched, uh, you know, every movie that I could find at the local video store, which turned out to be a really bad idea. And because of this, I think, I believe it was Fire in the Sky um, was the movie. And I experienced basically a period of time where I was completely frightened every single night. Um, that I was going to be abducted, like every little noise, the darkness could hide this or that, right? Um, kind of something more that would be associated with somebody who's in their five to eight years, three to three to seven years old versus, you know, 14, 13, 14. And well, I don't necessarily think that specific experience is, is, is common per se. I do think that everyone to one degree or another has a fascination, um, with the, with this subject. If they didn't, you know, science fiction for the most part would not be as popular as it is. And the question of extraterrestrials is kind of an odd one, um, uh, for Christians, uh, specifically because I think for people who are more in the materialist side of Christianity that, that don't kind of look into the more mystical side of, of, of Christianity, it can cause a real shaking of their faith if the full implications of 
their existence would be realized. If aliens are real, right? Somebody could ask themselves, if they're real, then why aren't they described in Genesis, right? Why doesn't God say, well, you know, made man and he was good. And then also on, you know, on the other side of the universe, he made the glee globs, right? Um, did God think it was unnecessary to bother early agricultural man um, with, with such kind of problems of, of thinking about extraterrestrials? Why didn't Christ, you know, allude to it? Um, if aliens uh, do exist, does this mean that the atheists are correct, that our faith is nothing more than a mental construct, that our species has created for survival and cohesion? Um, you know, th these are a lot of these things that y you could start to ask yourself if this is what it is presented as is true of a truly multitude of various different species of independent life, right? I'm not saying that one thing absolutely leads to another, but it would cause a lot of people to, to have a shaken faith. But the short answer for myself is I do believe they exist. I do believe um, that a, a certain degree of the sightings of UFOs and all that kind of stuff are real. And by that, I mean, I'm not saying that people, there, there's a certain percentage of people that are faking it. Um, and then there's a, a certain percentage of them uh, where they see something and it does turn out to be what they would say during Operation Blue Book, where it's swamp gas, it's a weather balloon, right? It's a military aircraft or something like that, right? So when I say some of the sightings are real, I mean that they are real and that they are not anything that can be explained by, you know, someone in a lab coat on the History Channel. I do believe the abduction and contactee experiences are, in fact, real, um, and by that, I mean, not only do I believe that they believe it, but I do believe something did happen to them and that they did experience something more than just uh, some sort of mental episode. Um, I, however, don't believe that they are what they are said to be. Um, they aren't us, uh, but they're also not new to this planet. And I believe that they have been here um, basically just as long as we have. So the, the history of the alien UFO phenomenon in, in the current form is quite a, a recent one. Uh, starting around the time of the Second World War, and I'm kind of talking about more the contemporary, not the ancient alien stuff, right? Um, it kind of started around the Second uh, World War when fighter pli pilots would re report objects in the sky, which they called Foo Fighters. Um, after the war, there was a period of panic as sightings increased across the Western world and resulted in a literal panic in America. I don't know if the same thing was in some of the countries like Sweden um, or others that experienced kind of a wave during this period. There was actually a battle, <laughs> a battle over Los Angeles that resulted in the military... Um, firing anti-aircraft weapons under the sky and wartime status was temporarily raised. Um, Kenneth Arnold, uh, flying near Mount Rainier during the same period of time, saw multiple saucer-like objects flying. And actually his report of these saucer objects are what coined the term flying saucer. And it became, you know, a media event. Uh, like I mentioned in Sweden, Northern Europe experienced a flood of activity during this time. Um, which kind of added to this atmosphere. It wasn't just like, oh, a couple guys in Washington or whatever. It was Los Angeles. It was in Washington. It was in Washington, D.C. You know, it was all this kind of stuff. Probably the most nationally known incident was when saucers, like I said, were, uh, I mentioned D.C. In 1952, they were seen buzzing around the District of Columbia. 
Um, later, I mean, people were freaking out at the time, media and people that were around D.C. And then the government later reported, well, it's just weather events. But at the same time they were saying it was weather events, the CIA actually convened a, a, a at the time, secret panel to investigate what, what was going on. Part of the panic was due to the politics of the time, as some believe perhaps the Russians had had a new technology. You have to remember, this is right after World War II. This is the ascendancy of the Soviet Union, a brand new world superpower. The U.S. government was as, as aware um, of kind of the advances and a lot of the Nazi science uh, projects from V-2 rockets and, and jet aircraft and they knew, because they were doing the same thing, that a lot of Nazi scientists had been scooped up by the Soviets. And they didn't know maybe one of those scientists or a group of them that the Soviets scooped up had either access to some sort of technology that the U.S. was unaware of. Or perhaps they, through their own genius, were able to develop it. So it was kind of like this... this uh, Part of the, you know, part of the reason of the panic was that people were going, not necessarily, is this extraterrestrial, but they're going, is this the Russians? Is this a war? And we don't know that we're even in one, but we're already in one, right? Um, but it slowly morphed into the extraterrestrial origin that we quote unquote accept, you know, today. The phenomena continued throughout the decades following after, you know, the Second World War, after 1950s. And it started to show up in movies and comic books and, you know, other transmitters of cultural information. In 61, the phenomena took another step. Betty and Barney Hill were driving in rural New Hampshire. They saw a bright light following their car. And they were kind of perplexed. They didn't know what it was. And then all of a sudden they, they got home. But then they realized that they were two hours late. Um... You know, they, I don't know the exact timetable, but right, they, they expected to be home at like, let's say seven o'clock the way they were driving and how far away they knew they were from their house, but it was nine o'clock when they arrived home. Um, this is what many abductees would later call uh, missing time. Uh, after kind of not knowing what happened, um, they ended up seeking therapy. And then through that, they remembered or starting to. Uh, unpack those memories and they remembered being taken against their will and having some sort of experiment conducted on them and this is one of the really interesting cases right because these were not two individuals who necessarily wanted to be nationally known they were an interracial couple in new hampshire in 1961 and this was not this is you know it wasn't 2021 that was a pretty um uh, uncommon thing at the time in a lot of the country or in most of the country, I should say, and not, not necessarily something that you wanted to be known for uh, and have your names uh, and pictures plastered up everywhere. Uh, in the decades after the experience, uh, this became uh, more and more normal uh, with around now, currently about two and a half percent of Americans claiming to have a, had an experience with alien abduction. And stories abound, ranging from classic abductions, you know, classic, to those who've uh, uh, come in contact with otherworldly beings who give the knowledge. And why by classic abduction, I mean, like, you know, you see a light, you float through the sky or something like that. You get taken to a ship and experiments are done on you and it's not a fun time. Um, and then there's others that talk about having contact, like a more of a friendly type of thing uh, with these aliens or otherworldly beings and they give them knowledge of the universe to pass along to humanity now the beings that they report 
range in appearance from humanoid Nordics, tall and blonde hair, blue eyes, to these small, spindly, large-headed uh, and uh, large-eyed greys to reptiles. Um, but psychological studies uh, back most abduction stories in terms of them being truthful. By that, they mean they these people are, by and large, not making it up. They have experienced something. The, the psychological studies have shown that it's not a bunch of people who are lying about, excuse me, lying about things. And they're, they're making these stories up for fame or to maybe get a movie deal or something like that. They experienced something. So what was it, right? So what are they? What are they? What are these people experiencing? Are these examples of races maybe that God created and he never mentioned to us or didn't feel that we needed to know? In my opinion, and this is just my opinion, but I think I'll, I'll make a decently strong case for this. I think that they are, in fact, demonic in origin. Now, let's work through the possibilities, though, first. So the first is that they are aliens from another planet. The second is that they're humans, maybe, from the future. Or three, they're beings, right? I mean, technically, aliens is not being human um, or from this dimension, but they're beings from another dimension. Or four, that they are demonic, now, if they were aliens from another planet, their actions are very strange and the stories of abductees don't really make a lot of sense. They would obviously possess a very advanced technology in one way or the other to be able to cross these vast distances of space very quickly, to be able to evade, um, to appear and disappear at will, to move at the speeds and, and in the ways that they do. Um, they, they can fool all of our most advanced uh, instrumentation like radar, apparently, whenever they feel like it and then show up when they don't care. So why appear for periods only to disappear? The jig is up once you've been detected, right? Um, they would have to be aware that this is a phenomenon that people are aware of. Um, so why make yourself known and then disappear and then appear and then disappear, right? Some have claimed they collect earth samples and they take animals and humans kind of like a wildlife biologist but after decades you you'd have the genetic material you need right the these stories of of um, impregnation and then you know taking children and then uh you know you're taking these genetic tissues for cloning experiments or whatever in animals like you have what you need um they could even really just capture humans and animals to breed and continue experiments that that way far away from us like uh, wildlife bi biologists will do you know through like zoos and stuff like that especially more earlier on where you would try to bring a, a pair a breeding pair of an animal and breed them out and then and do experiments and see what they are and how they react and all those sorts of things if their tensions were for good they could appear and make their plans happen if for bad really this same logic applies they obviously have the ability to defeat all our technology so be done with it whatever their intentions are if they were from the future, they aren't here to stop something that ends humanity or else they wouldn't be able to be here. They would also run afoul of at least our concept of temporal paradoxes as well by even being here. Um, you know, this is the classic paradox uh, that is kind of ignored or just totally ignored in science fiction. At best, they kind of skirt it with a little bit, a tiny bit of finesse, but... And, and this also interplays with chaos theory, but in short, if you, you know, like, let's say you go back in time and you kill teenage Hitler, I mean, why would you want to kill a baby, 
right? Um, the motion of history would be reset and likely wouldn't even exist and thus wouldn't have been able to go back in time to do the thing in the first place. It's kind of this causal loop. Um, so th that kind of at least, and granted we don't have all the answers and, and science doesn't have all the answers, but uh, as far as from what we can understand, it's really impossible that they are from the future. Beings from another dimension uh, is the most, I guess maybe the most likely non-demonic case since we really don't have any underst understanding of how dimensional beings, if they exist, operate. If their laws of physics are different, then any possibility really is a possibility. It's impossible to truly confirm or counter this claim, right, until it's better known. Uh, this is very similar. Someone in 1000 BC um, described what the you know the moon is like, right? Uh, it, it'd be totally different from what we actually understand it. So there's really no information to be able to refute it or confirm it. So it's this is kind of a Schrodinger, Schrodinger's cat scenario of it's it's both simultaneously uh, possible and impossible and and uh, at, the, at the same time. And I do believe. And we'll get to this in a little bit, though. But the talk of dimensional beings is demonic as well. But we'll, we'll get to that, like I said. Um, any Christian who has read stories of the saints, of exorcism, spiritual deceptions, etc., will recognize many of the UFO and especially abductee experiences not being something new, not being something novel. Um, Lucifer's name itself means light bear in the Christian tradition is full of instances where demonic entities appear themselves as being the beings of light to fool unknowledgeable or prideful Christians to trick them. Uh, the, in these ways, the, the phon phenomenon uh, is very... So I guess these are the ways that the phenomenon is very similar to demonic activity. So you have de demonic obsession... Uh, oppression, possession, and, and uh, spiritual deception. The types of UFO activity from mere sightings to contact or abductions can all be covered by these sorts of descriptions of known of what we do know about demonic activity. Spiritual deception is something that has been talked about throughout Christian history as well. Priests, religious laymen have all been subject to seeing visions of things or even beings appear in front of them as well as signs and wonders meant to awe them. The demonic are not a collection of these unthinking brutes, right? They're not just a pack of rabid raccoons released into an area. They're very clever and they carry out both kind of these short-term and long-term plans of attack on the Christian, on the church, on, on the world at large to try to fool and pull as many people away from God and into a, a life of sin. Uh, stories especially of the abductee and contactee are very, very reminiscent reminiscent of demonic possession and spiritual obsession. You need to remember that abductees and contactees are two different types of experience. So let's do the abductee first. Often it begins with days or weeks or months of a feeling, right? A feeling something's not right, something's present. Usually it's always at night. It's not, you know, I'm sitting at the beach and I feel something, right? Uh, it's always usually in the darkness. It's very symbolic, right? They feel like they're being watched. And then it escalates to a night. Like I said, it's always night. It's never in the light. And they will wake up. They can't move. They're paralyzed. They're terrified. They get lifted off their bed. They get brought into a different place. 
one that has a feeling that's cold and dark and then bright lights where they are. And without anesthesia, they're subjected to experiments that involve great pain and they're basically torturous, Officing, uh, often focusing on reproductive organs. 200 years ago, this would have been the story of the incubus, the succubus, or witchcraft. There was often a focus of these stories of their, these entities or uh, demonic evil people's uh, activities of focus on reproductive organs. The man's ability to seed a child or the woman's ability to bear them. Possessions can often involve uh, levitations and paralysis and a feeling of being trapped inside the body without being able to have agency over it. Feelings of dread and terror will also accompany uh, demonic infestations or oppressions as well as an unshakable feeling that something else is in the room or house with you. When upon it, uh, you know, you look around an inspection, quote unquote, nothing can be found, right? Whitley Strieber wrote the book Communion in 1987 about his experience that two years prior in 1985. His abduction experience is basically what I just described. He felt the presence for a period of time, followed by, uh, he saw beings that were kind of at peeking over his door. And then over time, they would kind of come to the door and then come closer to him night after night, kind of escalating. Finally, they abducted him. He reported intense fear, not peace, not calm, not love, right? Any of those sorts of things. Although just because you feel peace and love um, doesn't necessarily mean, but we'll talk about that in, in spiritual deception. Um, he never felt any of this. He always felt intense fear um, before and after and during. What's interesting regarding my theory of the demonic is things he talked about in his book and in other books and talks that he gave in, in, in following years. He described a described one of the visitors as, as having a feminine energy. And he called the ones that would uh, interact with him familiars, which if you know anything about um, um, vampire lore, that's, that's an interesting concept as well. But he described her as being the Sumerian goddess Ishtar. Um, he later encountered another being in a Toronto ho hotel he called the Master of the Keys. Never gave his name, but that's kind of the impression in his mind that he got apparently from this thing uh who wanted to describe a new image of god and gave him information on ufos the afterlife climate change and using uh human souls in machines or how human souls are used in machines or something along those lines do these insights into quote-unquote god as he referred to this being talking about it talk about any of the revealed truths if you read the book were there any of the revealed truths that we do know, the divinely revealed truths about God? Or were they more like New Age modern man's obsession with self, earth religion, neo-paganism? They were all the latter. <laughs> there was not one bit that had anything to do with what God has already divinely revealed and we know to be true, right? I mean, that's that that's a very basic filter that you will use if you're if you if you ever have any sort of talk with an individual who says that they have a revelation or um, something that purports itself to be f divine, uh, I have to apologize. Um, sitting here talking about you know these these concepts of demonic infestation and all that, and I thought I heard something uh, about a minute ago, and I was like, okay, well, it's, it's uh, you know the house creaking, and then. 
you hear a bang on the <laughs> the door and I jumped a little bit there. I'm sure you probably saw that on camera, but it was just my son coming down to uh, um, ask me a question. So, um, anyways, I I forget where I was at. Um, yes, so you know, uh, you know things like this. These 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 things that always talk about. Um, they do talk about. You'll find this that they talk about God and they will talk about uh, Christ actually quite a bit as well. But it's never in a way that is in line with any of the divine revealed truths. It is always in a way that is very much to do with kind of these new age senses of unity and all these other things. Um, it, it's, 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 always in, it's always counter to everything that we already know which is a very good indication that it is not what it is attempting to look like it is, and that it is something that is trying to deceive you and to take you off the, the, the righteous path. Um, you know, this segues us into contactees. And these are people who are victims, I believe, of spiritual deception. Most of these beings that, are, you know, like I just described, uh, Mr. Schrieber's uh, Master of the Keys contact, most of the beings that approach humans with knowledge, uh, as he described, uh, along with many others, um, will, like I said, they'll, they'll mention God and uh, to, to an extent. Sometimes they don't, sometimes they do. Uh, more often than not, they do. And they speak of wanting to spread knowledge of the universe and bring humanity into this unity and all these sorts of things. And when they do speak of God or, or some sort of supreme being, it's, like I said, it's never revealed. Um, it's always some new, new fashion. The knowledge is very new age instruction, speaking of tearing down divisions, right? Of love, of unity. Um, it's, it's a lot of times it's unity, 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 which unity itself is not a bad thing, but... It's never unity uh, in in the correct, in the ordered fashion. It's always in the disordered fashion. Some of these people are successful, actually, that supposedly have this contact in gaining converts to their ways and, you know, things like Heaven's Gate. Um, while others will just publish blogs that a couple people read and that's about it. The goal of the demonic is, of course, to capture as many people as possible in error and get them away from God, but we'll have to settle if they, you know, if it just doesn't work, doesn't, you know, this specific deception doesn't um, uh, become popular enough, it, it uh, they'll settle for the individual soul. But even the individual is useful to the larger plan, as the more people, as more people have these experiences, the more the question, the confusion kind of seeps into this larger zeitgeist of humanity. What's needed isn't the mass conversion of humanity right now, uh, because a lady in a trailer saw a reptile speaking about Xandar, but just enough maybe to form in humanity to allow the larger play to come to fruition. If it is demonic, though, why isn't it more, well, you know, classically demonic? Where are the pitchforks and tails, you know, red skin and sulfur? And actually, on that last note on sulfur, what's really interesting is, in fact, one of the it's quite common in UFO abductee contactee descriptions is to talk about a bad odor or the smell of sulfur itself. Um, there's a couple cases I'll mention here. Uh, in 1965, outside of Pittsburgh, a woman described seeing a UFO flying by. 
landed in a wooded area, and then uh, I can't remember if it was she got closer or just from being uh, uh, even just being around the area. There was a strong sulfur smell. Uh, the Falcon Lake incident. It's the most famous UFO case in Canada. It involved a man named uh, uh, Stefan Michalak, who was an amateur geologist, um, and he would go out and he was looking for silver in a quartz deposit. And he saw two objects flying around, and then one landed uh, not too far away from where he was at. And he kind of sat there and he watched it for an hour. He believed it was some sort of secret U.S. aircraft or something like that. So he got closer, he approached it, and he noted a sulfur smell. And after approaching the craft and investigating it, he was hit with a blast from the craft. And he kind of stumbled away, and then he started vomiting as he was walking back through the woods. And... It took him a long time to recover, but his family would note directly after the incident when he was he was recovering in his room, he was pretty badly burned and injured. They kind of kept on smelling this sulfur when they would enter the room um, where he was at. Uh, in 1865, there was a Montana trapper who saw a light in the sky and then he saw an explosion. And then this rush of sulfur smell hit him and it was shaking the ground from the explosion. And uh, Whitley Strieber, who we talked about, um, we'll mention probably a couple times here. Um, he he uh, described the smell of of the ship and the people's kind of being like a cheese with sulfur. Um, they, they, like I said, abductees kind of mention a general stink or smell to the to the beings or the or the ships. Um, they actually made a perfume that was des- designed to mimic abductions. Uh, they released it based on. Uh, contactees uh, or abductees or reports and stories and stuff like that. And the the actual so, uh, um, perfume itself is slightly pungent from sulfur. Um, and there was also a MIT Popular Mechanics article uh, released a few years back. Specifically, I think it was called like, What Will Aliens Smell Like? And they believed that they would have a phosphine sulfur, uh, kind of like a fart um, smell. Um, although that was kind of uh, obviously a very clickbaity kind of title and, and thing, but it, it still uh, stands on its own. Uh, a great inter, uh, example of the interplay of demonology and UFO activity I want to go into detail with is based on a talk that, you know, paranormal investigators, uh, take that for what you will, Paul and his son Bean, uh, Ben Eno, uh, did a UFO festival in 2017 or 2018. It was somewhere around there. Um, the subject was the co-mingling of UFO phenomenon and possession ca- cases, um, demonic possession cases. So this kind of co-mingling of, of UFO phenomenon that. So a little bit of background. So Paul was studying to become a priest in the Catholic Church, uh, but he began to be kind of interested in paranormal phenomenon and his interest... Um, once I kind of, he kind of wouldn't let it go, I guess. Um, I don't know if it was getting in the way of his studies or they were just, uh, his superiors were, were a little bit concerned about it. Uh, but he got moved from the seminary that he was at. I don't know exactly which one that was, but he got moved, uh, to a seminary kind of in the middle of nowhere in New York. And this happened to be a seminary where the diocesan exorcist lived. And for one reason or the other, he was, t- got, taken under the wing by this exorcist and brought him in on multiple exorcism cases, mostly in the Ogden, Ogden, Ogdenburg state hospital, which was a mental asylum. One of the cases 
involved a woman who was exhibiting strange symptoms and was believed to be possibly a victim of possession. She would, he, he would say that she would levitate out of the wheelchair and they would have to like push her down. It was him and another assistant. Um, but she, she apparently also reported seeing lights in the sky prior to kind of the manifestation of the, of the possession and also saw little gray men in her room uh, on nights before. He talks about how they noted that out of the seven or exorcisms that he worked with, uh, with this diocesan exorcist, five out of the seven involved people who would have some sort of UFO or abduction experience. The priest had told him not to pay attention to that fact. Don't worry about that. Don't pay attention to it. And as a side note, the priest is right. Not because it didn't matter as Ben would later claim. It does matter. You know, this is, this is so important, right? But because it would later play out, uh, the way that it was supposed to and distract him from what was really important, right? One of the things exorcists always talk about is like, don't engage with them. Um, don't, don't listen to them. Don't talk to them. There's very rare times when you actually are allowed to, um, and only the priest who is conducting that is allowed to interact with them, but only on very specific, uh, very specific reasons to do so. And on a very specific basis to do so, to get certain information, to, to move it along. Um, the rest of it's always some sort of distraction or confusion or to try to cause you to feel fear or lose faith, those sorts of things. Uh, he relayed uh, another story of a little girl um, who, when was asked the name, one of the times that you do interact is you want to find the name because when you have something's name, you have, you have a certain degree of power over it. You're able to call upon it, right? And the name was some something Asian, an Asian prince. And... When you heard the name, apparently, when, when the little girl spoke the name of who it was, he kind of thought in his head, he said, it was like, I just kind of went like, oh, that's kind of, that's baloney, that's BS. But apparently, the the, the mod was, was, had access to, to kind of know his, his, his thoughts, I guess, in a way. And even though he'd said it in his head, it responded to him in malay language something he didn't even know he just thought it was either gibberish or something like that um and he didn't know what was said until much later after the case was over the priest you know after the wrap of the case the priest kind of came over and, and spoke to him later um you know it's these sorts of cases take a long time to you know it's multiple 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 visits and i think this was a much later date when they were back at the seminary and the priest came over and told them that Actually, they'd gotten translated what was being said in Malay as part of understanding what was being told to move the to understand what was needed to be done next in the exorcism. And what had been said in Malay when he said BS at the name was, I was there when your father committed suicide and I told him to do it. And it turns out Mr. Eno's father, when he was a kid, had killed himself in front of him um, all those years before. And so when he heard that, it kind of floored him um, and, and very much um, affected him, as, as you imagine it would. So they get a lot right in the description that of, of, of the word alien, um, that alien is something we associate with from another world. Um, in, this, in this presentation, they were saying, you know, uh, a glowing being in a field, you see the, you know, in the middle of a field and you see this glowing being, Oh, that's an alien. But if it's a glowing being in the house, oh, it's a ghost. And they were saying we need to broaden the definition of alien to kind of 
maybe mean all these things. Maybe all these things are part of the same thing, right? But they, of course, then associate everything from possession to UFOs to ghosts to just being this kind of, um, in his opinion, a non-earthly parasitical being, which is not necessarily untrue either. But they reject the idea that these are demons, that they're, these are just these, uh, there's, there's different kinds, basically almost being kind of these semi-interdimensional beings, right? They re like I said, they reject the Christian concepts of demons, and they basically create a new non-theological category for them. Instead of just saying, well, they're demons, they just say, oh, well, they're not demonic, uh, that's just stupid. They are a uh, unknown, non-dimensional, dimensional, dimensional uh, alien, right? So much like the entirety of the post-Christian spiritual but not religious world kind of does this, where they will recognize greater power, but they just don't want to recognize it as it is because then if they do recognize something for what it actually is, that then requires them to orientate themselves to what they don't want to orientate themselves to. So by recognizing there is a greater power and there are these sorts of lesser power things out there that aren't good, right? By recognizing that, but going, well, it can't be God and demons or any of these things. Uh, it's, it's you know, uh, uh, spiritual beings, Right, because then you don't actually have to orientate yourself towards Christ and what that entails, because that is, and I recognize why you have trouble doing that, because it's not an easy path. Um, but the last thing I'll mention from that talk is that he relates how they had to go back multiple times to infestations and possessions, and how it's, you know, he's like, well, this is kind of counter to the popular narrative. Um, you know, he goes, the, the media will, you know, kind of the movies will kind of almost show that you go to do the ritual once, maybe twice, and it's over. And he's like, well, that's not true. And he's right. Like I mentioned before, that's very true. What he got from it was that, fr what he got from that was that it doesn't work. And it's because you're trying to expel something that isn't really what you think it is. So, of course, the way you're doing it isn't working. It's because they're aliens. But in fact, this is this is very common, and I, I don't know if he just never talked with the diocesan exorcist about this. It wasn't brought up, or maybe he because he left the seminary before he could really get into these kind of discussions. But exorcists talk about this quite openly. Uh, it's not them saying, you know, oh well, we go back and we go back and we'll go back and it doesn't work. What they say is like. It, you have to do it a bunch of times to actually get it to, to work. You have to weaken it and kind of figure it out and all those sorts of things. Um, long practicing exorcists will tell you uh, when they discuss these sorts of things internally, they they will they've talked to you know they I can't remember was it Father Lampert or Father Ripperger I can't remember exactly uh, which one it was. They said when they've done they they do like these exorcism conferences right and they're invite only right they're it's not a spectacle um but to discuss with each other um things that they've been seeing and 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 to kind of relate to that and give each other support as well and they would kind of talk amongst themselves you know how could the saints and apostles basically cast out demons in one session right i mean obviously christ is god he can he could do that but going like well the apostles could um, and saints from times uh, past could in like basically one session and sometimes just by 
you know, invoking the name of Christ and it would be gone. And, you know, now it takes a long time. They talk about how 50 years ago, you know, 70 years ago, it would take, you know, maybe three sessions or so um, to, to clear up a possession case. And now it can take over a year, sometimes multiple years to clear up. They believe, um, and this is not definitive church teaching on the subject, but at least what they believe is that it's kind of the loss of faith, the growing power of evil. Basically, the power of the church through the faith of its followers is low. Um, evil has grown in power, so like a battery running low uh, in, in an RC car, it can't just jump up and go. It just kind of has to crawl and takes a long time to get to where it needs to get to go. You know, it gets there, but it takes a while. The fact that Mr. Eno abandoned his faith and his vocation shows me kind of that the demonic, definitely in that case, was at work and able to, through the veil of the supposed supernatural, um, kind of, or I should say, throw a veil of the supposed supernatural over the eyes of even those who were fighting it, right? Even being confronted with the demonic, it was able to fool it that it was actually something else and get him to leave his vocation, get him to lose his faith. I mean, that's quite powerful. Uh, it's quite dastardly. So um, back to the question of why are demons wrapping themselves in a science fiction costume? You know, in, in centuries past, if you're trying to trick a thoroughly Christian population, monks, priests, etc., you need to appear to them in the context of what they view as good. God is good. Angels are good. So you would peer to them in that kind of that cultural language they would understand. But also the cultural language that they use as a litmus test for good and evil, right? So not just what they understood, but what is the cultural language that they use to convey good and evil? And like all good propagandists, you don't always attack the enemy population with negative imagery, right? You also try to appeal to what they conceive of as good. In modern times, though, in the, the, the world that we live in, God is not at the forefront. Christ and his church are not in, in, you know, in the ascendant, in power. They are on the decline, right? I shouldn't say Christ's power is in decline, but by that I mean the influence of the church, the faithfulness of its people. The reigning religion right now is science. Science is how we see the world. The glasses we use to determine reality, as well as the litmus test for what is good. Something's not good unless you have peer-reviewed studies, right? The priests of the new religion have gone through the entrails and they decided that this is good. Maybe later the entrails tell you that in this fact it's not good, but it all just depends. Study says, you know, eggs are bad. Stopping eggs, study says eggs are good. Starting eggs again, wait. Actually, yolks are bad, not the whites. Start just eating the whites. If you're trying to appeal to a population whose religion is science and materialism, you would use sciencey things right uh, in a kind of a parallel path though they use man's yearning we still have that yearning for the divine and connection to the divine um and and they will also parallel path to the religion of sciences the path of of seeking the divine, right? And so through the proliferation of secularized uh, secularized New Age religions, right? Yoga, crystals, astrology. I mean, I wouldn't say that those are necessarily, but you have yoga that's very much in line with, uh, that very much is out in the open as being a Hindu practice. And then you also have 
kind of the soccer mom yoga that's very much a Hindu practice, but they kind of, excuse me, make it a lot less um, obvious if that's what you're doing. You know, hand readers, magic, um, tarot cards, whatever. If you're trying to fool a crop of modern Western man, right, it would make infinite sense to appeal to their trust in science and the material. Aliens are kind of the perfect mix of mystical and material for modern man. So kind of both of those paths, right? The religion of science and and kind of the new age uh, paganism of the search for the divine. It kind of does both. Arthur C. Clarke said that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And really, what is more magic than beings from somewhere with seeming magically material technology that gives them dominion over anyone that they wish to, that they just pick out of a hat? If we want to take you, we take you. If we want to take him, we take him. We want to fly here, we fly here, right? It's, it's magic. It is absolutely magic. Aliens inhabit the material, right? Science by kind of this material science world by being material beings. For the most part, there are some people that talk about kind of it's a little bit more of the interdimensional. Uh, and when I say divine being, I mean not of the material world, right? Uh, but for the most part, they're very material. For the abductees, you know, their bodies exist of these of these beings. They can be measured. You can say, oh, they're about this tall. Their heads are about this big, right? Their ships are metallic. They have lights and doors, and you can view them with your observation of your own eyes, right? It's not something that's in flux and various colors or whatever, but it's distinguishable by flashing lights, metal object. They are, but they are also magical in that they can appear and that they can disappear. They're completely unknown, and we don't know anything We've never seen them before, and now they're just here. Uh, and our human authorities, our human ability to protect ourselves and those that uh, suppose that we've charged with doing that, um, can't do anything about it, apparently. They can levitate you, right? They can speak to you inside your mind without moving the lips. They are the perfect magical entity for the 20th and 21st century. Um it's part of that parallel path. In recent decades, the rise of psychedelics is kind of related. I very much think that this is part of that parallel path of the demonic into modern culture. These experiences, uh, especially with DMT, uh, which is a you know much touted and talked about magic elixir uh, in popular cultures. You know, Joe Rogan really did a lot to popularize it, um, and he has a reach that's larger than pretty much all the major news networks combined on a, on a, on a weekly basis. Um, and these, these people, you know, they speak not just of just kind of more what acid is like of just random colors and designs and visions, but seemingly objective creatures or something that inhabits that place. And this is what they call the clockwork elves. What makes this interesting to science is that multiple people um, seeming, uh, you know, that, that are separated, uh, seemingly will, uh, will have similar interactions, conversations, and, and visions. We'll talk to the same beings or, or sometimes even be together in the same place and relate that. And it's very interesting. And, and in fact, um, the DOD is, is apparently at least 
Actually, no, because I'm not 100% sure. That was just something I heard. I didn't actually look that up. But anyways, I, I thought I'd heard some sort of study that was being funded at least by uh, DOD money. But the in independent ma uh, nature of this, of two people having a similar experience, makes it possible to kind of measure it through our conception of the material science. And thus another nexus of the mystical and material in the modern age. Uh, Vin Armani is a friend, um, or I should say uh, uh, Cyprian. Um, and, but in a, a Twitter post, he spoke about his last of many adventures in, in um, I believe, I can't remember exactly what it was, how we got on the subject in Twitter in a Twitter thread, but he relayed um, to it, which is why I feel comfortable mentioning it, because it was, you know, if it's posted on Twitter, it's you're kind of expecting it to be public. Um, but one of his last adventures in, into kind of the DMT ayahuasca land was where there was a feminine entity that he had had multiple conversations with prior to, but had become angry with him because... It, recently he'd become interested in starting to read and study Orthodox Christianity. And apparently this feminine entity had told him that it wanted to exercise, uh, quote, exercise him of the Trinitarian God, unquote. So, uh, <laughs> um, as he, he also said in, in the post, you know, take from that what you will. Right. And I think that you can kind of figure out that, uh, that that's not a good sign of that. What you're talking to is, is good. So why did I bring up clockwork elves and UFOs? Um, how are they related? These are two very prescient examples of parallel demonic activity who have been able to mold the cult collective cultural consciousness away from God and towards a new religion. Atheism uh, is a demonic activity, but one that can't be ultimately successful on its own. By demonic activity, I mean it is demonic activity that leads you, anything that leads you away from God is an influence of the demonic in one way or the other. And I don't know the heart of Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens, but I take them at their word that they don't actually believe in any spiritual claim by anyone or anything as true and are as true of an atheist as one can be. These types of people really, though, are, are, are exceedingly rare in my experience. And granted, it's subjective. Most atheists are more often not kind of semi-closet agnostics or light agnostics when, when you really push them on these subjects, right? Because the difference between an agnostic and an atheist is really a belief, right? It's faith, which is ironic in itself. An agnostic just says, you know, I, I think that it may be possible. You know, I don't know if there is some sort of supreme being or not. I'm not sure. I don't know, right? You're agnostic on it. You don't have an opinion one way or the other. Maybe, kind of, I think so, but I don't really know. An atheist says, I absolutely know, right? And to have an absolute, to have an absolute belief in something that you can neither prove nor disprove takes faith. But anyways, um, like I said, when most people are, are push come to shove or so some, some sort of light agnostic. While not saying that they believe that there is a God, they will admit to believing there is possibly something out there, but maybe man corrupted it into religions and that's what they resist. We don't want this, you know, we don't, we don't want this uh, organized religion because look at this example and look at this example. And that's obviously why you don't want to be become part of a religion because it's only in religion do you ever find anything bad, right? Um, 
Most people recognize, though, that there's a need for some sort of faith or spirituality, however you want to define that. But generally speaking, most people will say, yeah, you know, I think, you know, I, I believe this and I think there's a need for a faith. Yeah, you know, I need faith in my life and however they want to define that or however they practice that is a different matter. Whether, you know, it could be anything from, oh, well, you know, I kind of do some sort of transcendental meditation or Buddhism or also Star Wars, right? CrossFit, veganism. These are all examples of faith and spirituality and in, in different <clears throat> senses or the other. This fills, though, all these things. These, these things can fill some sort of parts of that gap, or at least it fills like... Uh, it's something that can kind of fill a little bit of the gap. I'm not saying it replaces God anyway, because nothing can. But what I mean is that it seems to fill a little bit of that gap. But it's not unifying. It's not unifying for a large group of people, per se. The Church of Woke is another attempt at creating um, a secularized religion, a Christianity without Christ, a removal of the eternal sacrifice for eternal human um, sacrifice, right? So when people talk about uh, conspiracies, um, now I was thinking about going into Gerard, but I don't want to do that. Uh, when people talk about conspiracies, they often caveat it with, you know, they'll go, well, I'm not saying it's a group of guys in a smoky room, or conversely, those who criticize conspiracy theories will evoke the same image. What are you saying? Is this a bunch of guys smoking cigars in a room, you know, saying what's going to happen in the world? They'll, you know, that that image is, is is very much kind of like this uh, invocation um, that those criticizing will will bring up, and that those who do believe in a level of conspiracy, one a theory of one way or the other, will find some need to say, "I'm not saying X." Right. The thing is that while they are right that there isn't a group of men in a smoky room conspiring things, there is in fact a group in smoke that is. A book that people should specifically read is called Orthodoxy and the Religion of the Future by Father Seraphim Rose. Um, this was specifically on the topic of UFOs, and his take is very much in line with what I've been thinking for a while. Um, however, he did publish this in 1997, so it would be fair to say that I had parallel thinking with him um, at a later date, I guess. Uh, in that book, he talks about some of the things I, I mentioned here, like yoga, Zen, New Age, as well as charismatic movements and psychics. But again, you ask, what does this all have to do with demons other than you think it's demonic, right? What's the end game? How are these trends connected? They are on their face individually ways to pull souls away from God. But together, they're priming the world... Right? They're all kind of priming the world for what Father Seraphim Rose calls the religion of the future. People who are really into UFOs, uh, psychics, tarot, or, or whatever, they're not, they're not going to die for it. Right? You, might, you, you know, might find somebody who's willing to go and risk their life to go rush into Area 51. But for the most part, uh, it's just a, such a small percentage. It's, it's not even it's just a statistical um, anomaly. But it's you know, this is not a conviction like the early Christians had, ready to be tortured, beheaded, hanged, boiled, or crucified for. What it does do is make them open to more and more possibilities. If you're into yoga and Buddhism, as a former member of 
in the land of Christendom, how more likely are you to accept that, in fact, there are interdimensional beings who want to pass on knowledge? If you're a devoted Christian and someone says, well, I met an interdimensional being who wants to pass on knowledge, are you going to be pretty open to that? Probably not. Are you going to be way more open to that if you're kind of into transcendental uh, meditation and kind of were doing crystal stuff a few years back? If you had had encounters with clockwork elves and believed that they're just more than projections of your mind going like, no, I think there's something there, ma'am. Um, would you, how more willing would you be to accept that you should listen to the wisdom of a visitor from another planet? Even being a faithful Christian in this time, how more likely are you than a Christian, say, 200, 300 years ago, be willing to entertain these same possibilities? The religion of the future is going to come from the discovery or reveal of interdimensional beings, whether it's the elves or the aliens or some sort of overlap of these separate phenomenon and ideas. And so this kind of fits into this idea of this multi-beliefism, right? If you have all these different things of, well, yeah, you know, there could be clockwork elves, right? Oh, and there could be aliens. Yeah, that's a possibility, right? Oh, and there could be this. And all, like all these things are making it so that even if you go, well, I kind of think that aliens aren't necessarily real, but I do believe in the clockwork elves that if aliens reveal themselves at some point, how much more likely are you to go, oh, well, I guess I was wrong. That's, that's awesome. Let's listen to them. It creates constant confusion and many truths. You're kind of into aliens for a while and thinking, oh, maybe aliens have the answer. And, you know, I've seen these videos of these UFOs and they kind of go, oh, I, don't, I don't know, maybe, maybe this stuff isn't real. And then you, but you still want something to find out some sort of truth. And so then your friend tells you he took ayahuasca and he, there's something, this elf, and I, you just can't shake the feeling. He knows in his heart that this was something real, that it wasn't just a projection of his mind. He was talking to something real. So you switch over to that. So you're just constantly bouncing to all these different things. In it, there have been more and more signals in, in recent years, specifically on like UFOs and, and to a certain extent on these interdimensional beings, um, that something's coming some reveal, some ground-shaking event that we're kind of being prepared for. So if any of you were kind of like me and read anything about UFOs, you kind of know that for the past like 60 years, the governments of the world outright denied pretty much every instance of UFO activity. It was weather event, it was swamp gas, maybe it was a classified military technology or couldn't be determined based on evidence. Too specifically classified, like we can't really say if it's this or that, but it's either this or that, right? Then all of a sudden, a few years ago, there was some sort of shift, and I, 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 I didn't notice it right away, but it was after a few months or so that I, I just really, I, I really was like, "What is this? Is this is such?" a 180 on this. The military began releasing videos. Like, right, this was not um, a whistleblower, you know, that wanted to, to make this known to the public. 
this wasn't somebody that stole these, you know, videos from their from their black box and their and their F-18 or anything like that. The military themselves began releasing videos of these objects. Employees and active duty personnel spoke in public of their reality and unknown origin. Lieutenant Commander Fravor, he was on Joe Rogan, for goodness sake. Um, on Joe Rogan, again, a former member of Blink-182 who started an institute. And this sounds so, it sounds ridiculous, right? Former member of the band Blink-182 started an institute to investigate and release information uh, as well as technology. Uh, and while to some extent people at first were kind of like, oh, this is kind of weird, yeah, rock star into UFOs, who really cares, right? But actually you started to see semi-respectable government people starting to join this company, right? It's like something to the Stars Institute or something, if you, if you look it up. Uh, sorry. I just have to know the name. Uh, yeah, it's called To the Stars Academy of Arts and Science. Yeah, Tom DeLong. Um, and, and anyways, it was, it was just, it wasn't met with derision. It was people, you know, people that had actually worked for the government and stuff started to become part of this company or whatever. And just recently in, uh, June, late May, June, uh, 2021, President Obama himself just recently spoke about this phenomenon saying that, you know, new religions could develop if aliens were revealed as real. And these are all tells signals that something is coming we are being primed for it as jonathan pajot says about satanic influence in society you don't need to listen to records backwards you don't need to look for hidden symbols and stuff like that it's not that that doesn't nest you know that that's not a possibility or it doesn't happen here and there but you don't need to do all these sorts of things to find out the plots of people um people are just People are very bad at hiding what they are doing. They're very bad at hiding at what they are doing. They're usually pretty open with it. These beings are not new to this world. They've been here as long as us. One could classify them in a way as being interdimensional, as the world of the spirit, the, the world of the divine being is not the same as the material. And by divine being, I mean divinely created, as we are too, but they inhabit kind of a basically a different realm um, than the material world that we do. And they interact here as well, but they're not made up. Um, they're not carbon-based life forms, I guess, if you want to put it in a sciencey way. Um, these things in scripture were referred to as the Nephilim, and they're referenced in Genesis four six. Now, or yeah, Genesis four six. Now giants were upon the earth in those days, for after the sons of God went in to the daughters of men, and they brought forth children, these are the mighty men of, men of old, men of renown. And they were talking about the sons of God. Usually when you see that, they talk about, uh, they're talking about angels, right? Um, or fallen angels. In Deuteronomy 9.2, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom thou hast seen and heard of, against whom no man is able to stand. And in Numbers 13.33, there were certain monsters of the sons of Enoch, of the giant kind, in comparison of whom we seemed like locusts. Now the reality of these beings is disputed, and there is not a hard church 
or I should say definitive church teaching on who they are. Um, but they are often referred to as members of the demonic, the fallen angels, the ones who rebelled uh, along with Lucifer and would not serve a third of the angels. God created man to be his imagers on earth as he created the angels to serve him, as well as some of them were to assist us as in that mission. Spirits were given authority over jurisdictions of the earth, but fell to pride and let themselves be worshipped as gods, the pagan gods. It's important to remember that for the most part, the pagans were not making things up. There really were spirits that inhabited the lands and interacted with them, performing signs to them, leading them away from the one true living God, he who is. In the context of aliens and the new world religion, we should new world religion, we should listen to what was said in Ephesus, uh, Ephesus. Apologies, in Ephesians 2:2. 2, 2, Where in time past you walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of this air, of the spirit that now worketh on the children of unbelief. Paul is speaking to the Ephesians of Satan, the fallen one, the prince of the power of the air who leads the unbelievers. The symbolism involved in this phenomena is interesting as well. I talked about sulfur, which really isn't symbolic, but the most popular common description of aliens, especially in abductions, is that of the, the greys. They're short, small bodies, big heads, grey skin, small mouths, uh, large black eyes. You know, skin color, obviously, in humans varies by region and where you came from and who your parents were. But a grey to pale color indicates lack of oxygen. Oxygen is life. Without oxygen in your body, you die. If somebody's pale, if they turn grey, they have expired. Your mouth is how you communicate. It's how you express emotions. If I go like this, well, you're not watching on the video, but if I don't move my mouth, if I don't smile, it's really hard. And you can fake smiles, but you're faking a smile to try to evoke or to try to show someone an emotion that you're trying to convey, right? It's how you express your emotions. In sacred scripture, your mouth is the door, the gate, which allows either evil or goodness to flow. We are told to guard our lips as speaking unnecessarily is itself a gateway to gossip, conspiracy, and sin. On the flip side, the mouth, when in accordance with the will, is a tool for evangelization, for worship, for praise to our Lord. Smile mouth could be symbolizing a lack of emotion, the lack of commonality with the human need to communicate a being that is of the material world. The use of this reported psychic communication, mind to mind, is pure influence peddling. Pure influence peddling. While we are susceptible to evil being implanted from words that flow from the mouth to the ear, hearing a voice in your head is much more to the point. You can't stop that. You can't choose to not be, to have a voice speaking to you directly into your head. You can't put your hands over your ears. You can't leave the area. A large head is associated with knowledge and wisdom, but these are being, but these beings are either uncommunicative, only invoking fear and committing unspeakable acts. When they do speak, they don't pass profitable wisdom and knowledge that passes through the filter of tradition that is comprised of revealed truth, but that of novelty, that of what's counter to the message of God. When they do speak, they're not passing that which draws others to righteousness, but to focus on the material, on the secular goods, 
to be united on earth, to care for the earth, all material concerns. It's not that those are not necessarily evil things to care for the earth, but when you don't care about anything but the earth. But if you don't focus on the divine, you never mention the divine, it's just as evil as calling one to do evil acts. If your only focus is on the individual, on me, on man, I'm the most important. I'm the focus. Take, take care of the earth so that I can be taken care of by the earth, right? That is not something that is of God. Just caring for the poor, for example, uh, is a material good. If you ignore God, it is an act without true moral virtue, as your orientation is the material state of that man and not his eternal residency. So, if you, all you do is go, well, Christ told us to care for the poor. So you start a soup kitchen, but you don't do anything, any, any, any terms of evangelization of these people. If all you do is say, well, I don't want to talk about God because I don't want to, I want people to come here to have, have a meal. What's well, laudable to care for the poor. Their eternal state is much more important. Their message these aliens, their message is a false lifting of the eyes, right? It's not a true lifting of the eyes to the divine, but it's a false lifting of the eyes to the material heavens. But in fact, you're actually really firmly planted on the concerns of man. The large black eyes are really the most interesting. They are large, which would indicate that they have better vision, better clarity, but their color shows an opposition to that darkness. In Matthew 6, 22 through 23, the light of thy body is thy eye. If thy eye be single, thy whole body be lightsome. If thy eye be evil, thy whole body shall be darksome. If then the light that is in thee be darkness, the darkness itself, how great shall it be? This could show us that they not only see darkly, but are dark themselves. They have seen and understand much more than we do, right? They have that, uh, better vision. They have seen more than man does. But in their choice to not serve, they've clouded their vision. They've darkened that vision, shra uh, shrouded it in darkness. No light can be seen. Another interesting symbolic aspect is the, is the craft of themselves. Throughout history, they acted in ways that amazed those who saw them, right? The ancient alien tales, right? I mean, there are, and you see a lot of these uh, in the medieval period, things being seen in the sky, uh, some sort of tube or whatever, a light flying through the sky. Um, false signs, false wonders. Early accounts are reminiscent of things, are reminiscent of things that if we saw them now, we wouldn't be quite amazed, kind of probably disappointed if that was our UFO experience. But over time, they've kind of kept pace with exceeding our known expectations kind of evolving in a way with the times. And this could be due to the lack of knowledge of the observer um, or to the lack of knowledge of the observers of the people observing at the time. But it is interesting how the descriptions have changed over times as kind of, kind of keeping pace with, with technology. The ships are often described as seamless. This is reminiscent of Christ's seamless garment that alludes to a priestly nature. A seamless garment is for the priest. Now, these are not linen, you know, garments, but metal ones, seamless garments of modernity and materialism performing signs and wonders in the sky while simultaneously 
torturing humans and passing along ungodly knowledge, leading one farther away from the Most High and towards a galactic humanist neo-pagan planetary worship. I would also like to point out that there seems to be constant reports and stories of crashes of these lights in the sky and the heavens that crashed to Earth. These are literal symbolic stories of the fall of Lucifer, who's the light bearer, God, uh, or who's the, who's the light bearer of God, refusing to serve. He was cast out of the heavens, falling to earth. In the book of the apocalypse, it speaks of the same thing. That old serpent who's called the devil and Satan, who seduceth, seduceth the whole world. And he was cast unto the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So, I know this was a little long one, but I talk about this so that you can be ready, ready for what is to come, so that when these signs and wonders are revealed, you're not overtaken by them, not led astray by the gray wolves in sheep's clothing. So please remember to pray, to fast, and to keep the faith. God, we praise you. Te Deum Laudamus. Thank you.